Good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Welcome to those of you who are normally downstairs at this time. So good to have you up here. Uh, This morning, we come to a passage in Mark that is both challenging and incredibly freeing. And like most deeply true things, it only takes a second to grasp in concept what Jesus is saying here, but it takes a lifetime to work it into our muscle memory, to allow the Spirit to open up a space into us where this becomes part of how we move in the world. We are rewinding to chapter 9 this week. Uh, Next Sunday, our friend Daryl Ford will be with us, and we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 10 uh, next week. Always a joy to hear from him. Shane is going to be speaking at the men's breakfast this week, so, you know, it's going to be a fun week here at All Souls. For now, we are in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. You'll notice that verses 42 through 50 are also in the bulletin. We'll get to those at another time. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to us. They left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Then they came to Capernaum when he was in the house and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child into his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask by the power of your spirit that we would not simply be hearers of your word, but that we would become doers as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are born with a desire to be great, to do something that matters, to to, to matter ourselves. I mean, nobody is here and you just want to occupy space. We want to make the world better. We want to leave a mark. We want to do something that creates a, a ripple effect. We want to leave a legacy. Kids, maybe you can help me out with this. When you talk about what it is that you want to do when you grow up, do any of you dream about just being average at it? No, you want to be the best, right? The comedian Eddie Izzard talks about this. He has this little bit about growing up in London in the 1970s. Uh, One day he says a career advisor came to school and took him aside and said, kid, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? 
What do you want to do? Tell me. Tell me your dreams. And he said, I want to be a space astronaut. I want to go into outer space and discover things that have never been discovered before. And he said, the advisor looked at him and said, look, you're British, so scale it down a bit. (laughs) And so the moral of the story is, you know, kids, it's never too early to have your dreams crushed. I'm kidding. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is we all want to, no matter what we do, we all want to, in the language of this story, we all want to be great. You think about our cultural mythologies. Uh, We don't tell epic tales about Odysseus braving the seas to get back to his beloved Penelope anymore, but we do tell stories that are just as epic in scope. I mean, take a look at the top grossing films of 2022. Anybody see one of these at least? Only a few? No moviegoers in this? Okay, there we go. It's okay. There's no shame. I've seen like all of them, so it's all good. But, you know, there's not a mid-level manager in the bunch, right? These are all stories of people who are doing great things. They're locked in like life or death battles, the strong protecting the vulnerable against powerful enemies, the fate of the world hanging in the balance. And this kind of plays into our our psyche on some level. We we watch them and we want to see ourselves in the story. We want to know how we can be great. We want to know how we can do something significant. We want to be heroic. We want to be the man or the woman who rises to the occasion when all the odds are stacked against us We want to be great. It's just a deeply formed part of our humanity. In the poetry of Genesis, the call that is given to Adam and Eve in the garden is to cultivate it, to to bring it to bear, to enrich it, ultimately to give it back to God as an offering of praise. It's a call to do great things. And we're created in the image of God. We're given this noble calling to rule to reign alongside God, to actively partner with him in taking the world forward. So things like ambition, things like desire, they aren't bad things in and of themselves. Then They're why we get up in the morning. They're why we do anything at all. But as the story goes, it turns out that desire and ambition are also pretty fragile things. Temptation gives way to self-centeredness. The desire to serve God and bringing about his purpose in the world yields to the lie, you will be like God. And they try to make a world that serves them. This instinct toward greatness that is planted in us gets warped and bent by these desires that get turned inward and focused on us. And before long, this desire to serve God, this desire to serve others, to make the world in his image gets twisted into the desire to be served and to remake the world in our image. The vision to do something great gets replaced by the vision to be something great, to be thought of as great. But here's the thing, if we are created for greatness, How do we live with this desire to do something that matters in service to God, bringing this whole project of creation forward in line with his vision so everyone can flourish, while at the same time resisting the warped desire to simply be seen as someone who matters, positioning ourselves at the very center of all of our efforts as someone to be served by others? That is the question at the heart of Mark's gospel this morning. Jesus is out on the road, he's teaching his disciples, 
And these last few weeks that he's got with them, they're, they're, they're what he has, he's teaching them in private because he knows that pretty soon, in a few weeks, he is going to start turning his face toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. And there are some things that his disciples don't yet see, don't yet understand. They don't yet see him clearly. Now Mark tells us that Jesus is a rabbi, but we actually don't get in his gospel a whole lot of the specifics of what it was that Jesus taught. For that, we have to go to Matthew or, or to Luke. So when Jesus does begin teaching something in Mark's gospel, this is the, the, the evangelist's way of saying, hey, pay attention to this. Jesus makes a second prediction of his death and his resurrection. And then he tells us that the disciples don't understand And I think they get a bad rap. I mean, it's not because they are stupid or dense or anything like that. It's just that they cannot imagine a world where power is shown through something like death and resurrection. How could they? Everything around them is the story about the strong being served by the weak. Everything around them is the way of glory, of of strength, of self-promotion. The most well-known public intellectual in the first century was the Roman Uh, philosopher Plutarch and he literally had an essay titled how to praise oneself inoffensively like that was like the bestseller of Jesus day and it's in those kind of cultural waters this idea of the strong willingly humbling themselves to serve those who were weak like that that just goes against nature that goes against common sense And it sounded as crazy in first century Judaism as it sounds today. Paul goes on to say that the cross is scandalous to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Which is to say that nobody, if they were writing a script, would have written it the way that Jesus says it's going to go down. The idea of those beneath you serving them, laughable. So they can't wrap their minds around it. But more than that, they're afraid to ask Jesus what he means by it. And maybe it's the kind of fear that comes when, you know, you don't ask the question because you don't really want to know the answer. After all, it's a lot easier to pretend that Jesus is the kind of Messiah that's going to get them the kind of life that they want, a kind that's going to have them rubbing elbows with the powerful, a kind that's going to get them invitations to fancy red carpet deals. So they move on. And then when they get to the home where they're staying, Jesus asks them, hey, What is it that you guys were on the road arguing about? And it's stone silent. Kids, you know how it is, like when your parents ask the question, hey, whose footprints are left here in the kitchen? Who left their dishes on the table? And you just like, if I don't answer, maybe they'll go away. (laughs) Nobody? You've all trained your kids very well. I need to take some parenting classes from you. (laughs) Happens every day in my home. The disciples, they don't say anything about this because they are exposed. The disconnect here is meant to be glaring. Jesus has just told them that he's gonna demonstrate greatness through vulnerability, through service, through self-sacrifice. And the next minute, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And this is Mark's way of holding up the Jesus vision of greatness with everything else that goes unspoken and assumed about the world. And I would argue that still goes unspoken and assumed about the world. But notice this Jesus response. He doesn't berate his disciples. He doesn't call them to the carpet for wanting to be great. He doesn't 
tell them to go sit in the corner. He doesn't get exasperated with them. Instead, he sits them down. And he sits down. He takes a teaching position. He calls them to himself, and he begins to teach them. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He, he honors this impulse that they have. He says, hey, that, that's awesome. God put this desire to be great in you. You are made for greatness. But then he redirects it by redefining greatness altogether. The kingdom. In this place, in the only reality that matters, greatness is synonymous with service. And the word he uses in Greek is diakonos. It's the word for servant, particularly for one who waits on tables. It's the word from which we get the role of deacon in the church. Do we have any deacons in the room right now? Raise your hand if you are a deacon. Just, okay, there's, I was, don't be shy. It's a good thing. It's, these, are, these are people who are servants. And literally the word means to kick up dust, like you know, somebody who is like frantic with all kinds of activity. I don't know what that tells you about the psychology of the times. It's a pretty interesting word picture. But it's also a really stunning metaphor. A servant is somebody who makes others' lives better, not themselves. Whose posture is all about anticipating other people's needs and then meeting those needs before thinking about or even focusing on their own needs. It describes somebody who is hard working, who is faithful, who is humble, and somebody who is not bound to other people's opinion about who they are or busy trying to curate an image of their lives. Jesus says, This is how you will find life, this posture of humility, of treating others as better than yourself. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but humility is kind of a tricky thing in our cultural moment. I mean, generally, like, we appreciate people who are humble. They're super great to be around. But we're more kind of on the line of the how to praise oneself inoffensively side of things. At least in our cultural space, we are taught from the cradle to market ourselves, to project strength, to minimize weakness, to, to show all the ways that we have got our act together and then post rad stuff you know, on Instagram as a way of proving that we've got our stuff together. And then on the other side of that, we're often comparing ourselves to the, the highlight reels of other people with the stuff in our lives that made the editing room floor. So it creates this kind of doom cycle of ever escalating self-promotion. Let me give you an example of it. A few years ago, I was uh, out to visit a former student of mine. He was a youth group kid when I was living in Virginia, and he was just finishing up his senior year at Princeton University as a pre-med slash comparative lit major. And he looked just exhausted. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of work. And so I asked him, you know, graduation's coming up. What are you going to do for fun this summer during this break between when you graduate and when you start med school? And this is what he said, no exaggeration. Oh, you know, not much, Stephen. I'm just, you know, I'm going to work this pediatric surgery internship in France. I'm going to read through Turgenev's Romantic Idealist Period for this article that I'm writing for the literary magazine that I edit. And I'm going to train for a marathon. What are you doing? And I was like, stuff? I do, st I do stuff. And I, I felt this like pressure in my body to like be impressive. 
but brought up in this kind of achievement culture where we were constantly told to, to market ourselves, to stack the resume, to be noticed in order to stand out. To, we're, you know, this posture of humble service, like it might be nice to hang around, but it's not gonna get you noticed. And that's where we are, a culture of people trying to strive and win success and look flawless, even when we know that we are not. Because we've come to believe that in order to matter, we have got to be seen as great. The story that you end up believing, though, becomes the story that you live out. Catholic theologian and writer Henry Nouwen discovered this kind of disconnect between the life that his ambition had won for himself. He was a professor at Yale. He was a sought-after speaker. He's well-regarded, well-respected. But then God started to take him on a journey of, of breaking all these things down and did some of the deepest work in his life by placing him in a community of adults with special needs. And in that community, nobody cared about how eloquent he was, nobody cared about how smart he was, about his degrees, about how he was a sought-after speaker or writer. There he was just Henry, who learned how to love. And he did it by serving those who could do nothing for him except for love him back. And reflecting on these kind of two parts in his life, he wrote this. Most of my past life has been built around the idea that my value depends on what I do. I fought my way up to the top of a, a, a lonely top of a little success, a little popularity, a little power. But now as I sit beside the slow and heavy breathing Adam, one of the members of the community, I start seeing how violent that journey was. So filled with desires to be better than others, so marked by rivalry and competition, so pervaded with compulsion and obsessions, so spotted with moments of suspicion, jealousy, resentment, and revenge. And how many of us could say the same about our lives? We're living out the same script of upward mobility only to find that there's always somebody up a little bit ahead, there's always something up there just a little bit further on. And, and I get this, like how many of us, if we could be rich and famous tomorrow, we would choose it, if we're honest. Just a couple of us, the rest of you are like, no, poverty, obscurity, that is my jam, like bring it on. Oh, I'm like, cool, I can stop preaching then, all right. But seriously, like that is the script we have been handed. And so Jesus comes to the disciples and he revises the script altogether. He says, no. The one who is great is the one who serves others. And this is a culture where service was shameful. It was something that was seen as demeaning. It was reserved for those on the very bottom of the social strata. He tells them the kingdom is not actually a race to the top. It is a race to the bottom. And serving others is not only how you're going to get there, but it's how you're going to experience authentic joy. A servant is free from the desire to be more than you are. Dallas Willard puts it like this, service to others in the spirit of Jesus allows us the freedom of a humility that carries no burdens of appearance. It lets us be what we are. I mean, how many of us are trying to live out someone else's imagination? This is one of the counterintuitive secrets of life that if you want to experience joy and the fullness of the kingdom, you're not gonna find it by building up a reservoir of self. You're gonna find it by giving yourself away. To get out of your head, you will have to get into your neighborhood. 
And so often when we are sad, when we are bummed, when we are stressed, when we, we get very insular in our thinking, we often can't think our way out of these feelings. They, they start to collapse in on top of each other. Thinking these repeated thoughts that kind of carves out these ruts in our brain so that even when we try to think about something else, we keep coming back to the center of our own concerns. And there's no judgment in that. It's just how we are wired. It takes embodied action to get out of yourself. You have to, you can't think your way into a new way of doing. You have to do into a new way of thinking. It takes conscious disruption, as our friend David Bailey recently put it. And so often when people have kind of plateaued, and maybe this is you, you've hit this spot in your spiritual life, and, and, and you don't know where to go, and, and sometimes when people come and they ask, what can I do, and sometimes it, it is this, but more often than not, the answer is not, well, you just need to go to one more Bible study. And don't get me wrong, we have a high value for spiritual practices here, Sabbath, prayer, scripture reading, But the end of those things, the purpose behind them isn't to be an ace at any of them. It's not to just kill it at reading your Bible or or being really rested and energetic because you've learned how to take a Sabbath. No, the purpose behind them is to become a person of love who is shaped in the image of Jesus for the sake of others. Service is both a practice And it is the outflow of a life of practice. So what would it take? And what would it look like if love was the measure of your spiritual maturity? If the only way that you answer the question, how do I know I'm growing in my faith, is how well am I loving? Am I becoming a person of love who reflects the life of Jesus? How can you offer your gifts, your skills, your your native intelligence that you have to someone who needs it? And not because you might get something back from them, not because you might get some social access or that you might gain from it, but simply because you desire the good for that person who needs it. So to underscore this point, Jesus picks up a child and places it on his lap and says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes not just me, but the one who sent me. Now, we hear that through this lens of a culture that romanticizes childhood, and we think of kids as kind of like the embodiment of everything that's sweet and innocent and cute, and you guys are all that. All the kids in here, you're all those things all the time, I'm sure. But that is not at all how children were thought of in Jesus' day. They were at the very bottom of the social ladder in the first century culture. There were servants and there were children. And aside from family affection, I mean, of course, parents loved their children, but there was no sentimentality attached to childhood at all. Children had no status. They had no prestige. They couldn't work. So they were just another mouth to feed. And that made them among the most vulnerable members of society. And even today, if you look at the stats on child poverty or at poverty just in general in the world, More than half of the world's poor are children. And in the Hebrew imagination, there's this trifecta of when God talks about speaking for the vulnerable, caring for the vulnerable, it's the poor, it is the widow, it is the orphan, those who are in no position financially or socially to do anything to pay you back. In our context, that might look like the single mother, the foster child, the refugee, 
This is the measure of love, serving those who largely go invisible in our culture or whose presence is viewed as a liability. Jesus says, when you welcome them, you welcome me. And for Jesus, service is tangible. He takes the child into his arms and welcomes this child. It's a posture of, of, of hospitality, of openness, of receiving, of sharing space. So what if part of being the renewal of all things meant opening up our lives, meant extending an invitation to those who can't do anything for you, who can't do anything to help you meet your goals, but you can serve so that God's purposes for them and their life come about. And whether that is opening up and entering into somebody else's world or, or opening up your life to them, either way you create a space to hear their needs, to let their pain, let their joys, let their struggles shape your world and trust that Jesus is present. The scene closes with the disciples struggling to get it. Without missing a beat, John says, hey, we saw this guy casting out a demon and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. You can almost hear him like, well, so was that, did we do the right thing? Did we do the wrong thing? Like, what was going on here? And Jesus says, no, you, you still don't get it. In the kingdom, it's not about who gets credit, it's about who gets set free. Wherever you see acts of service and love done in my name, that's where you are going to find me and friends, that means any of us can be great. You don't need letters after your name. You don't need to be the best on your team. You don't need to be beautiful, famous, rich, privileged. You don't need to have status. The question is, are you humble enough to serve? Anyone can be great in the kingdom. And we often think that it's some grand thing in order for our lives to be meaningful, but it's often as small, Jesus says, as giving a glass of water to one who is thirsty. It's the thousand acts of grace that we overlook in our hunt to be seen and to be known. And yet this service, not recognition, this is the way of Jesus. For those of us who spend a lifetime in the public eye, in the spotlight, who do things that are visible, that we, we, we do things in order to be seen as great, one day that will all be exposed for what it is. We will be seen for who we are. And that is an act of mercy. But also for those who have spent a lifetime in the shadows as hardworking, humble, faithful servants, you also will be seen for who you are. And on that day, the first will be last and the last will be first. The ones who are great, the one who everyone knows their name, the one who everyone is tripping over themselves to serve and to get into their good graces, all, a lot of those names will be forgotten. But the people we've never heard of, but for whom the measure of their life is love, those are the ones standing at the front of the line with Jesus. The gift you give when you have nothing else to give, but you give it anyway, that is the measure of greatness so for Jesus, anyone can become great. It happens one glass of water at a time.